You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Let me read to you from Nahum, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle. Collect all your strength, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro. Through the squares, they gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went? Where his cubs were with no one to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So I actually want to begin this morning uh, with a quote from Ronald Reagan, of all individuals. Uh, He once said this, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Now, regardless of where you stand on politics, I think Reagan's statement holds true And in fact, I think you could insert a number of other words into that statement that would all be equally true. As Christians, we could say that our church is never more than one generation away from extinction. Or we could say the same about our denomination. Or we could even say it about the gospel, 
because we also can't pass the gospel on to our children through the bloodstream. So the gospel must be fought for and protected and handed on to them to do the same. Uh, This is the lesson we're going to see as we continue to study the book of Nahum. We are always only one generation away from either outright revival or rebellion and anarchy. We are always only one generation away from either of those two. Um, If you weren't here last week, uh, last week we started a three-week sermon series on the book of Nahum. And if you're not familiar with this book, don't worry, you're in good company. I think most of us in this room, myself included, would say that we're we're not very familiar, or at least not as familiar with this prophet as we ought to be. Uh, Some of you may even just be finding out that the book of Nahum even exists, uh, and that's okay. Uh, But we're studying this because this book is really the spiritual sequel to the book of Jonah. It's like Jonah part two. So when we finished our sermon series on the book of Jonah, if you were left wondering whatever happened to the Ninevites in the Assyrian Empire, this is where you get your answer. So last week we saw the prophet Nahum declare destruction on Nineveh. Only 150 years after the life of Jonah, uh, really just long enough for all of the Ninevites Uh, In Jonah's day, who repented of their sin, really just long enough for that generation to pass away and for a new generation to rise up, now another prophet has been commissioned to declare the destruction of this city because this new generation didn't repent of their wickedness. Instead, they've actually returned to the very evils that the previous generation had fled from. So now we're going to look at chapter 2, and we're going to see Nahum begin to describe the destruction that he had just declared. And if you paid attention to the text that I was reading, you probably noticed that, that he goes into some pretty graphic and vivid details in this description. Now, we don't have time Again, to to look at all of these details. But what I want to do today is I just want to highlight a few of the verses from chapter 2. I want to give you some of the historical context of what's going on here. I give you some insight. And then once we have a better understanding of the context, then I want to leave you with both a caution and a comfort from this passage as we think about how it applies uh, to us today. So first, just let me walk through some of these verses, uh, kind of giving you a, a historical context of what's going on. And the very first thing we should probably recognize is the uh, rather strange grammar at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, if I was an English teacher uh, and Nahum was one of my students, I'm not sure if I would pass or fail him. Because uh, in verse 1, he begins by describing a battle that appears as though it's going to take place at some point in the near future. 
I mean, he tells the Assyrians that they had better watch the road and dress for battle. You know, they, they are to be preparing for what's to happen. But then in verse 2, he writes as though the battle has already taken place in the past. He says that the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So which is it? I mean, has the destruction in Nineveh already happened or is it about to happen? Well, the answer to that, of course, is both. I mean, to the initial readers of Nahum's book, the city of Nineveh, uh, has not yet been destroyed. That's not going to happen until, you know, a few decades later after this book was written. Uh, but Nahum can write about these future events as though they are ancient history, because from the perspective of the Lord, they are ancient history. I mean, the Lord doesn't experience time in the same manner that we do. So as far as God is concerned, these events have already taken place. So, so Nahum isn't predicting one possible outcome that could happen uh, to the Assyrian capital if they don't repent. Uh, rather, he's just kind of like a, a news journalist. He's just reporting the facts of how the battle has already been fought, even if it hasn't actually yet been fought. Um, then verse 3, moving on, he, he gives a a description of the Babylonian army. He says that this army that you know uh, that has swooped in. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but it was, it was the Babylonians that that swooped in uh, to sack the city of Nineveh in 612 BC. He says that the Babylonians are clothed in scarlet. Uh, even their shields are red. Just this giant army of red. Uh, and many cultures throughout history, they shared a fondness for that color. I mean, it was often associated with vitality and life because it was the color of blood. Uh, but on a more practical level, many armies, like the Babylonians, they clothed themselves in red so as to disguise their wounds in battle. I mean, if somebody is wearing red, it's harder to tell if they are bleeding or not. Uh, so it makes the Babylonians appear all the more invincible. You can't even tell uh, if and when they have been struck. And as I said last week, this, this idea that, that any army really could, could overtake a stronghold like Nineveh, that would have been difficult to believe. Because up until this point in history, the Assyrians... They had established the largest and most influential empire in the world. They were the reigning superpower of their day. And they had surrounded their capital with walls that were 100 feet tall and a moat that was 150 feet wide. And they uh, have built themselves in and fortified themselves in. But coming after this impenetrable city is a seemingly invincible army. So, so we're left with a situation that's kind of like an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Verse 6 gives you some insight into how this battle is going to play out. 
Uh, It says that Nineveh's palace is going to melt away. Uh, And going back into chapter 1, Nahum said that with an overflowing flood, the Lord will make an end of the Assyrians. And and when you uh, read prophecy like this, uh, so often you understand that the writers are trying to be very poetic. And so you assume that much of what they're writing, you know, they're, they're really just speaking figuratively. But that's not actually the case here. Uh, Nahum is, is actually speaking quite literally. Uh, we have documented accounts from historians during this period who actually recorded the battle uh, between the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And as the Babylonians fought their way closer and closer to the Assyrian capital, the Lord was clearly on their side, uh, not the side of Nineveh. Uh, That year, in particular, there was a torrential rainy season that was kind of unheard of uh, for that climate in that part of the world. It, It was not typical. And the Assyrians had built their capital along a river in order to maintain a fresh supply of water, even during times of siege. But because of the unusually heavy rains, the Tigris River flooded. And so uh, the moats, even the moats around Nineveh flooded. And those floods actually struck down much of the walls which had for so long protected the city. And they knocked those walls down and they left this city, which had thought to be impenetrable, wide open for attack. So so when Nahum writes in verse 6 that the river gates are opened and the palace melts away, he's not actually speaking in some figurative flowery language. He's talking literally. The Babylonians had a formidable army, uh, but they're not actually going to have to do all that much work. Because the Lord is fighting on their side, not the side of the Assyrians. And much of Nineveh and the palace that was there was washed away before the battle even began. Uh, Just a a couple more insights into the the context and then we'll move on. Uh, But verse 10 describes just how total uh, and complete the destruction of Nineveh is going to be. It says, desolate, desolation and ruin. Uh, Later in chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, uh, we're even told that the city is going to go into hiding. Uh, It's going to be hidden after this battle. And again, uh, Nahum is actually speaking quite literally here. Nineveh was so utterly destroyed and left so desolate after the Babylonians were finished raiding her that everyone in the city was either killed, taken into captivity, or fled. Nineveh went from being one of the most populous cities in the world, kind of like the the New York City or the London of its day, to, to becoming a ghost town. And eventually, even the ruins of this city were swept beneath the sands of the Iraqi desert, and Nineveh just disappeared altogether. 
I said she was destroyed in 612 BC, but she wasn't discovered again by archaeologists until the 1850s. All right, so she was destroyed in 612 BC. She wasn't found again until the 1850s. And that's how thoroughly she was laid to waste that it took over two millennia for any future generations to find where this city had even been located. And usually when archaeologists, they unearth new ruins, you know, especially sites as large as a major city like Nineveh, um, and especially ruins that, that have been mostly untouched throughout history, um, usually within them they find a wealth of treasure and trinkets that showcase a city's former wealth. Uh, but that was not the case with Nineveh. When, when her ruins were finally unearthed by archaeologists, uh, there wasn't much there. Everything had been stripped bare. Because just as, Nineveh, or just as Nahum predicted in verse 9, the Babylonians plundered the silver. They plundered the gold. The, the plunderers themselves had been plundered so that there was nothing left. So, so now that we kind of understand this context of, of what happened to Nineveh and the Assyrians, now that we understand that a little better, I want us to start thinking in terms of how do we apply this to our lives? Let's ask ourselves the question, uh, why does a passage like this exist in the Bible? How does it help us to live more Christ-honoring lives? Well, there's both a caution uh, and a comfort to be had from these verses let me start with the caution. Uh, the Assyrians were often associated with the symbol of a lion. It's kind of like their national animal, uh, just like the United States is often associated with a bald eagle. So the Assyrians had the lion. And because of that, that meant that their capital was often called the lion's den. And there's some pretty graphic illustrations used in verse 12 uh, describing these lions. Uh, we're told that like lions, the Assyrians filled their caves with, with prey and their dens were, were full of torn flesh. So the Assyrians are being described here as a very violent people. But here's the thing about lion's dens. The, the Assyrians didn't know this because the book of Daniel hadn't yet been written, but the Lord isn't afraid of a lion's den. I mean, just remember what Daniel said after the Babylonian king threw him down into one. He spent an entire night in one, but he came out unharmed saying, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. The Lord is in the business of raiding lion's dens and shutting their mouths. And while that's a relief for the Daniels of the world trapped in those dens, um, it, it should be a very serious caution to any would-be lions. I mean, here the Lord is mocking the nation of Assyria. He says, 
where is your lion's den now? You know, what good is it doing you? And, and if we're not careful, that could just as easily become us. It could become our own country where, where the Lord mockingly says, where are your bald eagles now? Those eagles with their sharp talons, what good are they doing you when the Assyrians looked out at the Babylonian army that was surrounding their city, surely they must have understood the irony that what they had done for so long to so many other nations, that very same thing was now being done to them. And that shows us that at the end of the day, everyone really does reap what they have sown. When you live a life of sin, you shouldn't be surprised when the consequences of that sin shows up on your doorsteps one day. When you live a life apart from God, you shouldn't be surprised to find that you'll be forced to spend eternity apart from him as well. So that's the caution of this passage. But finally, let's move on to the comfort I know as you read these verses, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of comfort here. Uh, But just like last week, it really depends on your perspective. Because what was written to condemn those in Nineveh was simultaneously meant to give comfort to those in Jerusalem. I mean, that's why Nahum was able to write in verse 2 of chapter 2 that the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. The the Assyrians were the ones that actually conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel uh, just 60 years after the life of Jonah. But now the Lord is avenging his people and he's restoring their former glory through the destruction of their enemy. And, And there's a very important detail about this book that I want to point out that we in the English-speaking world often miss because we don't speak Hebrew. Uh, But Nahum isn't just a name in Hebrew. I mean, it is the prophet's name, but like most words in Hebrew, it actually has a meaning to it. Uh, Nahum is actually the Hebrew word for Comfort or comforter, which in many ways is actually kind of ironic when you think about it, uh, because this book would not have come across as very comforting for the Assyrians. I mean, you could just imagine someone who speaks Hebrew just picking up this book and reading that title, which says comforter, and thinking that they're about to read a very uh, uplifting and encouraging part of scripture And then they come across, you know, a verse like verse 13 that says, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. Again, that doesn't sound like the most comforting of words. But the prophet Nahum did intend this book to offer comfort, uh, not to the enemies of God, but for God's chosen people, for the followers of the Lord. 
And Nahum won't just be a comfort to the people of God, only back in the days of the Old Testament. But believe it or not, he actually appears again in the New Testament during the life of Christ as well. Uh, There's a city that Jesus quite often frequented. It was a city called Capernaum. Uh, And just think about that name for a second. Say it slowly in your mind. Capernaum. That city was named after Nahum. And you know, there's no way of knowing, but a lot of people believe that that's, it was named after him because that was actually the city where Nahum came from. Uh, but literally, the city of Capernaum translates to mean the city of comfort or the city of the comforter. And quite literally, it will be a city that offers a great deal of comfort. Because it, it so often will be the central focus of Jesus' ministry, which is what we saw when we studied the book of Mark last year. That this is the city where Matthew will become the first follower of, you know, he'll, he'll become a follower of Christ for the first time. Uh, this is the city where uh, Peter's mother-in-law will be healed from her fever, uh, where Jesus healed the centurion's servant. Uh, this is the city where that paralytic was, was lowered down through the roof. But Capernaum, this city of the comforter, it, it wasn't a place of such great healing simply because of its name but rather because of the presence there of the greatest comforter and healer of all, Jesus Christ. And so we can find comfort too, uh, just as the people of Capernaum did, uh, just as the people of Judah found these words comforting during the days of Nahum, uh, but they are only a comfort to us if we Repent, rather than trying to to trust in the repentance of past generations. Um, When you compare the two cities of Jerusalem and Nineveh, uh, it's a very interesting contrast to one another. You get two completely different stories. Uh, As I've already said, the previous generation of Ninevites They repented of their sins back in the day of Jonah. Uh, But what those Ninevites back then failed to do was pass their newfound faith on to their children and their grandchildren. So that by the time Nahum appears on the scene, the Assyrians are once again just as wicked as they were before. But during this same period of time, the opposite is actually happening in Jerusalem. Uh, During the life of Nahum, the king of Jerusalem was a man named Josiah. And Josiah was a grandson of one of the most wicked and terrible men of Judah's history, uh, Manasseh. He was a terrible, evil king, and his son, Amon, wasn't any better. So in Jerusalem, you had actually had generation upon generation of those who had all uh, turned against the Lord. 
The situation was actually so bad that at one point they were using the temple in Jerusalem as a place to house prostitutes. Uh, But Josiah broke that cycle of perversity. Uh, One day, if you're familiar with his story, uh, one of his priests stumbled upon the word of the Lord in the temple which again shows you just how bad the situation had become. I mean, prostitutes were a dime a dozen, but no one could seem to remember where they had placed the Bible. It was just collecting dust in some closet somewhere. But by chance, or perhaps through divine intervention, this priest stumbled upon the word of the Lord, and he read the contents of its pages And his life was radically changed as a result. And so he went running to King Josiah so that he might read it. So that his life might be changed and transformed for forever as well. So so that's what's taking place in Jerusalem during Nahum's life. After generations of debauchery, a new generation was once again discovering God's word and revival is breaking out, which is why the Lord's blessing was upon Judah and why he continued to protect this tiny little nation and and keep it out of the jaws of so many larger empires. So, So this story is really a cautionary tale for those who are living like the Ninevites and who have once again turned their hearts away from the Lord. But because of that, the Lord's wrath will soon be upon them. Uh, But this story is also one of comfort for those living like Josiah and the people of Judah and Nahum, because the Lord will protect those who have turned back to him To take refuge in him. But in either case, this story is a reminder of what I said in the beginning. The gospel is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to children in our bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. If we're not careful to pass on the light of Christ to a new generation so that, you know, that new generation can hear the gospel, if we're not careful to pass it on, that generation is liable to rebel against God. But but even when those in the past haven't always shared the gospel with us, maybe as they ought to have, uh, there can still be revival, If we will open up God's word uh, and if we are faithful to fan the flames of the gospel once again and to remind future generations of the eternal hope and comfort that is only found in the death and the burial of and the the resurrection of Christ. Uh, There doesn't have to be rebellion. Rather, there can be revival. Let me pray. Father, uh, may we never take the gospel for granted. May, may we 
recognize the preciousness of what it is, the reality that it offers hope, the hope of spending eternity with you. If only we would submit to you and give our lives to Christ in this life. I mean, that is the single most important truth, not just for our generation to grasp, but for any and every generation to understand. So may we be faithful to share the message of Jesus' sacrifice with all of those who are willing to hear so that even future generations will take hold of the gospel and so that it will radically transform their lives as well. To say this in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.